Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to another live edition of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. I said when we started doing these shows live a, a couple of weeks ago was that news was happening at such a pace that pre-recording just didn't make sense. And also it's been a lot more fun to do them live. This is not a, a fun subject by any stretch, but certainly one that fits into that category of evolving and changing by the, not even by the minute, but by the second. So I, I'm very glad that we have the opportunity to come to you live. It's a very big day today as we talk about the invasion, which is the only way to describe it, of Ukraine by Russia. Now, this for a lot of people, I, I think, was something that they imagined in the weeks previous, the weeks leading up to this, was just brinksmanship and idle threats, and a lot of people saying, okay, is this actually going to happen? Well, it has, and we've already seen the footage. This is not just uh, tiptoeing across the border. There have been uh, assaults on multiple fronts in multiple parts of the country, civilians that are being targeted by this, apartment buildings. And I want to talk about what's happening, why it's happening, and also what it means for Canada. And I, to do this, I want to welcome in someone who I know is very busy and has been on the phone and, and emailing all day. And that is Yaroslav Baran of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, also a geopolitics commentator. Uh, Yaroslav, thank you for being with us today. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Good to be here. Now, I know you're obviously coming to this from the perspective, which I think most of the West is, of, of just looking after the Ukrainian people. And I know the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress has already done a lot uh, to mobilize for humanitarian support. And, and we'll talk about that very shortly. But I want to go back to first principles here and, and address the why, because I, I know Putin's motivations for doing this have been, in a lot of cases, distilled into this idea of you know, someone who's never quite accepted that the age of the Russian Empire is over and that the Soviet Union is over and and really trying to go back to that czarist Russian empirical ambition. Is that what this is? There is there something else that Russia is trying to get out of this? You know, that That's precisely what it is. This is like the, the final gasps of atavism of a of a dying empire, uh, but they are very dangerous final gasps. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, we, we could characterize it as, a, as an attempt to restore the kind of, you know, the Russian you know, empire greatness or the Tsarist greatness. But it actually goes a little bit deeper than that. Uh, Putin belongs to a school of, of thought, a school of revisionist history um, that, you know, in order to make their, their myths work, they need to appropriate Ukrainian history. Ukraine is a much older uh, country than, than Russia. Its history goes back hundreds of years earlier. Uh, but through that earlier medieval Kievan, you know, Ukrainian state that was one of the largest countries in Europe, it had strong ties to Byzantium and Rome and Constantinople and, and all that kind of stuff, that a lot of rich legacy that was later appropriated by the Tsars who called themselves like the new Caesars. So they had to draw that connection through Ukraine in order to create these myths about their God-given you know, right to govern and, and greatness and defender of the faith and all that jazz. So he, for like spiritual and mythology reasons, his school of revisionism, they need Ukraine because otherwise their whole myth uh, doesn't work. So it's, it's not logical. It's not a question of we need their natural gas or we need their wheat or we want their, you know, some, you know, insert resource here. It's deeper. It's more zealous. It's ideological. Uh, and that makes it a heck of a lot more dangerous. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's an important point, because if there is a, a strategic goal there, if it were for oil or if it were for a geographic advantage, you, you can better approach it. I mean, it's like when we see with, with terrorism, with fundamentalism yeah. of the violent variety. Yeah, you, you can't, yeah you, you can't go up against ideology because you can't outreason them. You can't yeah. you can't even necessarily combat it. But but at the same time, there are also a lot of people, and we're seeing this particularly with NATO, that are not looking at this as a global issue that are not looking at it as their responsibility. They're saying, yeah, this is just, our, our goal is containment, to keep this within Ukraine. Well, sure, maybe that's helpful if you're Estonia, if you're Latvia, if you're Belarus, but yeah. that's not particularly helpful if you're Ukrainian. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Because that, I mean, taking that approach essentially means that the 45 million people in Ukraine are going to be human shields or human sacrifices uh, to, to serve as a, as a, as a buffer of blood between uh, Central Europe and Russia. And I'm not sure that we, you know, that we're prepared to say that that's the best we can do here. Um, now, you're right in, in a sense in saying that NATO does not have an obligation to step in. It doesn't. Now, the Eastern members of NATO, Poland, uh, Slovakia, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, they get it. They know exactly what this is, this sort of attempt at rebuilding the empire. So they know full well that they're next. So they realize that it's just a matter of time be before it becomes head on NATO's problem. So it's a little bit simplistic to say that, well, not NATO's problem, so go away. Let's just you know stick our head in the sand. And secondly, if you look beyond NATO obligations, there are two countries in particular who actually do have a treaty obligation to step in. Um, and I'll, I'll just uh, take you back in time a little bit. When the Soviet Union broke up in 1991, overnight, Ukraine became the third biggest nuclear power in the world. It inherited a big chunk of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. It was nuclear power number three in the world. Um, global powers freak out. Oh, my God, we've got more nuclear states. Is this stable? What do we do? So years of non-proliferation talks ensued, culminating in the 1994 Budapest Memorandum an international treaty by which Ukraine willingly gave up its nuclear arsenal in exchange for security guarantees from three countries, Russia, the United States, and the United Kingdom. I mean, the Russia part of it is a joke because Russia had an 800-year history of constantly invading Ukraine. But still, I mean, you had to start somewhere. So the, the great powers, let's get them at the table. If you guarantee our sovereignty, guarantee our security, guarantee our territory, we will give up our nuclear arsenal. So in this case, sure, one of the parties to the treaty is the aggressor, but the other two parties, the US and the UK, do have a treaty obligation um, to step in and stop the assault against, uh, against Ukraine's territorial uh, integrity and its security. So it is a little bit more complex than just saying it's a NATO issue. It's there. There are dimensions beyond NATO where major powers like the U.S. and the U.K. do have an actual live written treaty obligation to step in. And by the way, even if you look beyond Ukraine, um, if if they fail to live up to their uh, commitments under the Budapest Memorandum, that actually imperils all future uh, denuclearization or non-proliferation talks. Because if you're like, I don't know, North Korea or Iran or, you know, pick your country who's going to be uh, in some denuclearization uh, talk down the line, they're going to be like, really? 
you want us to take your word for it that we're going to have some kind of international security guarantee when we give up the strongest thing we have to protect our uh our security and our in our sovereignty like nobody yeah. will ever believe any kind of non-proliferation deals if the budapest memorandum isn't lived up to no, that I think that's an incredibly valid point, Yaroslav, and and thank you for raising that. I've seen some of the chilling footage here of fathers putting their family on buses and in cars and staying behind to fight. Uh, the Ukrainian Global. government has, as I understand, basically put out that call: if if you're going to stay and and fight, you know, we'll take you. Hmm. This raises the question: How prepared is Ukraine? I, I know you have years of of a lot of Western backing and training and equipment for yeah. Ukraine. I, I don't know the size of the armed forces, but but how pre prepared logistically are they for an attack like this? Yeah, look, I don't have the stats uh, at my fingertips, but um, I mean, Ukraine is a sizable European country. We're talking between forty and forty-five million people. It's got a territory the size of France. Um, but well, it's the second largest and, European country. I mean, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, if you don't count the European part of part of Russia, if you look at countries fully within Europe, it is the largest country in Europe. Sure. And so, by European standards, it has it has a sizable armed forces. Now, um, by compared to Russia, it doesn't. I mean, they would they are clearly outmatched by Russia in in numbers and in technology, and that's simply a fact. Um, Will they put up a hell of a good fight? You bet they will. And even if Russia succeeds in occupying Ukraine, it will be really, really hard for them to hold it. I've seen one commentator refer to it as the bear trying to digest a porcupine. Like it would not, uh, it would be, it would be a very difficult go. So let's talk about the response further away, because you're right. A lot of the Baltic states, a lot of other states around Ukraine, in some cases, they've been down this road before. Estonia, within the last 15 years, has seen a significant Russian aggression in particular, as have other states like that. Further away, we saw those photos, which really became memes a couple of year, a couple of weeks ago, of Canadian cabinet ministers with their little eight and a half by 11, I, I stand with Ukraine signs, which is a, a lovely sentiment, but I don't think anyone in Canada or in the United States or in Britain, for that matter, I've been watching a lot of UK media today as well, is all that keen to put uh, boots on the ground in Ukraine. So what is the support that you would like to see from uh, a lot of these Western uh, states? And, and more practically, what do you think is the support they're likely to send? Well, I guess I, I, I live in hope that we're going to start to see some serious sanctions. So far, the kinds of sanctions that we've seen are the kind that you normally get in a sane environment when you're dealing with a logical actor, right? Um, when, you, when you try to send a signal that for that act, there will be this amount of pain. And targeted sanctions are usually where countries begin. You go after the, the governing class, the oligarchs, you know, the captains of business, the people who have influence internally on the government. So we've seen sanctions already, like freezing the assets of, of you know, cabinet ministers and key, you know, business people around Putin. Fine. That hasn't had an effect. And, and Crimea was, was invaded eight years ago, and it still hasn't had an effect, those, those sanctions. So far, we're seeing more of those kinds of sanctions. And that simply ain't good enough. Um, for, to, to push back against an ideologically driven bully like this, the only thing they get is, is force. And it's got to be serious pain. We, what we need is like Iran-grade 
sanctions. They need to be isolated. They need to be made, not made into a pariah state. They've made themselves a pariah state. We need to respect their decisions and isolate them from the social normal uh, order of, uh, of, of how other countries uh, behave. That means do not trade with them. Do not recognize their passports when Russians try to, to, to travel here or to London or to Paris for their shopping trips. No, sorry. Uh, we don't accept those passports anymore. Turn around and go home. You don't accept them as travelers. You freeze the uh, you freeze their commercial assets. You don't trade with them. And the the biggest uh, buttons we can push would be uh, isolating Russia or booting them out of the international financial e-commerce uh, transaction systems, like the SWIFT system, for example. So they go to swipe a credit card or use a bank card. It doesn't work because the backbone infrastructure making all that stuff work has just kicked them out. That's the kind of stuff that they will feel. And all of a sudden, they're going to feel internal pressure. You may have already now, seen a lot of, big a lot protests of these... in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Those protests would be 100 times as big if people's credit cards suddenly don't work. So you think it's fair to put forward economic measures that go beyond just targeting the specific oligarchs in the leadership class, but basically just Russian commerce as a whole, including uh, because individual people that have nothing to do with this are caught up in those measures? Yeah, it's, it's true. And that's the unfortunate thing. But with with a bully like this, it's the only thing that they will uh, uh, it's the only thing that will speak to them. Having having a mass unrest uh, at their hands might might finally get them to reconsider. And keep in mind, too, though, like when we see things like, you know, discussions about natural gas and, Ger you know, Germany buying Russian natural gas, etc., Putin has been planning this for a long time. He has known that the usual kind of sanctions are coming. So he's been cozying up to China. He's been building a market in China. He's been cutting deals. Mm -hmm. Germany turns off the taps. Xi Jinping is more than hungry enough to consume whatever, whatever natural gas Russia has to sell. So even the usual kind of, kind of uh, counter moves um, that had some effect in the last eight years will be less effective going forward because he has established China as a sanction offset. Yeah, and, and that's the problem with a lot of, I mean, North Korea, that's been one of the, the challenges with any of the measures that have been tried there. And obviously Russia's a much a different animal, much more integrated with the West and, and with the rest of the world than North Korea. But, but China's an interesting thing to bring up here, Yaroslav, because in China's case, we talk a lot about the Belt and Road Initiative and, and China's uh, ownership of, of much of the developing world. Russia doesn't have that as much, but it, it does have it. And I think in a lot of ways has flown under the radar. One notable example is with uh, vaccines. I mean, a lot of these even smaller European countries like Albania sure. and whatnot, they were getting a lot of their vaccine supply from Russia. So there yeah. is uh, among countries, small and, and medium, and even India. I mean, India ha has been very ambiguous and, and almost ambivalent about this because I think India has enjoyed it, its relationship with Russia. There are mm -hmm. still a, a large group of countries that do have in some way, a, a debt to Russia, either literally or figurative, and as such, are not wanting to to get involved here. Well, yeah, you're right. That is that is at play here, and it's not just vaccines. I mean, Russia has actively been building vassal states all around it: um, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, um, uh, Belarus is a great example. It's really strengthened its its position. Russia has really strengthened its position as a as an overlord of Belarus in the last. Uh, in the last half year or so. 
And yeah, so that makes a difference. I mean, they are, and it, it is just the new uh, incarnation of what we used to call a, you know, a direct empire. Now it's just indirect empires by, by creating dependence on your military uh, support, your military security, uh, your trade, uh, and, and so on. So let me just ask you in, in closing here about the humanitarian aspect of, of this, because war creates casualties and it isn't just the soldiers on the battlefield. We're already seeing people flee. This isn't just about those eastern regions that Russia claims. We're already seeing talk about uh, the, the risk of, of Kiev following, falling. So there are going to be people that are, are in need. How is uh, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress trying to support well, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress—it's a—it's a—it's a peak uh, association that that uh, that knits together all the other Ukrainian organizations in Canada. Um, so, what it has done is it's partnered with the biggest charitable foundation, the Ukrainian, um, uh, uh, the Canada Ukraine Foundation. So, the two of them have come together and jointly established a hub for all humanitarian giving. So, people don't need to wonder. Do I donate to like Red Cross Ukraine or do I, you know, like, where do I go? So they've established a joint foundation uh, run by the Ukrainian Canadian Congress and by the Canada Ukraine Foundation. You can find it through either one or the other through their websites. They're both promoting it heavily now. And right now they're just amassing funds. They don't yet know how they will need to be deployed, but they know they will be. We will have a humanitarian crisis. Uh, whether it's a refugee crisis or whether it's blood supply or whether it's shoring up hospitals or sending doctors or whatever it may be, there will be serious needs and they want to be prepared to uh, deploy as, as, as soon as those, those needs become apparent. Yaroslav Baran, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, that was a quite uh, quite an important interview. And it's, again, someone who knows the situation very well, who knows uh, the history and the context of that, because I, I do think the context is important here. And one thing I, I would raise, interestingly enough, I did uh, not that long ago, actually, for fun, a course on war and conflict. And it was a, a Europe, uh, not a European, a university level course, which looked at through history, a lot of the European battles, a lot of the big global battles, and one of the takeaways from it, and, and there have been numerous studies about this, uh, there's a big project called the, I think it's the Correlates of War Project, which uh, literally just tracks conflict. And the one takeaway, you can't look at the numbers without realizing that interstate war just doesn't happen. It, it does in very small scales like Azerbaijan, Armenia, but these are typically very targeted, very local. Civil wars are very common. Wars between non-state actors and state actors, very common. But the idea of one country, World War II or World War I style, going into another country, this is not a common thing anymore. And we can be very grateful for that. But when this happens, and we've known it was happening, we've known it was a risk, it raises significant questions about what the appropriate response is. And you get two schools on this. You get the realists that say, this isn't our problem. They can just do what they want over there. This isn't our problem. And again, that's the that's a natural position, I think, for a lot of Canadians and Americans to take. And then there's the position that is forming the backbone of agreements like NATO and the UN Security Council, which say, collective defense. You attack one of us, it's like you've attacked all of us. And interestingly enough, I saw an interview last week with, uh, oh, who was it with? It was with a former British defense secretary. I think uh, Michael Portillo is his name. 
And he was saying that at the time, uh, 20 years ago or so, when he was the defense secretary and NATO was uh, trying to, or, or Ukraine was trying to join NATO, a lot of the concerns by NATO members were, we think it's likely that Ukraine is going to be attacked by Russia. So we don't want to be in a situation where we have to take action against Russia. Because if a NATO country is attacked, every other NATO country has an obligation to defend them. It's called collective defense. And that was the concern. So this has been known. And the question is, do we actually want to stick our necks out for Ukraine? That's the question that's been asked by a lot of countries. And NATO's position on this is, is no. If this is contained, it may well stay that way. If this starts to spill over into other areas, that's when you may see a change taking place. Obviously, we're going to follow this. I, I'm going to be perfectly candid here. I am not an expert in Russia or Ukraine. I know geopolitics. I know international relations. I know the international institutions. But I am going to bring you guests who know this when we talk about this. And, and we'll certainly have updates as this conflict goes on, which, as we've saying, is changing by the minute here. So uh, that's our, our Russia-Ukraine update for today. I, I do want to change the turn the page just a little bit here. And, and obviously, we've had a lot of news this past week. A lot of the bank accounts, in fact, most of them have been unfrozen. So you may recall on Tuesday, we had Tom Morazzo, who is the uh, trucker convoy volunteer organizer we spoke to. And he said all of his bank accounts had been frozen. Well, as of yesterday afternoon, they have been unfrozen. We have Justin Trudeau saying the emergency is no longer... So not that it changes much in our day-to-day -day life, because if it's a fake emergency, life isn't that much different when the emergency has been declared over, or the so-called emergency, as we've said. But again, I would make it known and note here that we should not let Justin Trudeau off the hook just because he's decided that the emergency is no longer a case. And these legal challenges that we're seeing from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, from the Canadian Constitution Foundation, all of these things, I think, need to be continuing and we'll continue to pay attention to them. We've got to take a quick break here. When we come back in just a couple of moments, we hear a lot of talk from politicians about all the reasons we can't exit the pandemic and end restrictions. And they say, well, the science said, well, forget about what they say about the science. A group of scientists and experts have said that there is a way out of the pandemic. It can start right now. We'll talk about that up next. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Obviously, we've been speaking for weeks, for years now, about the COVID restrictions that have, in many ways, as I've said time and time again, been in some key areas far worse than the virus against which these restrictions were intended to protect, especially as the virus has gotten weaker through the Omicron phase when some governments were insisting on adding restrictions. Now, slowly but surely, we've seen some of these start to be lifted Notably, Alberta and Saskatchewan took a, a very swift approach to getting rid of their vaccine passports in Ontario and Quebec and other provinces. We have a, a bit of a slower uptake. But the big question here is, when is the pandemic over and who gets to decide? It's the World Health Organization that said we were in the midst of a pandemic, but do we have to wait for their cue to say it's over? Well, a few weeks back, you may recall, we spoke to Irvin Student of the Institute for 21st Century Questions, which had assembled a crack committee 
called the Canada Science and Policy Committee to exit the pandemic. The focus was to figure out in concrete ways how to get Canada from the indefinite, never-ending lockdown, permanent emergency to a place of where we want to be, which is hopefully getting rid of all of these restrictions. Urban Student joins me back on the show now. The committee has, after just a few weeks, said that the pandemic is effectively over. And let's start there, Urban, because I, I, words matter, and you're not saying over, you're saying effectively over. What does that mean, and how does it differ from over? Well, thanks, first of all, for having me, and thanks for all your reporting, and, and thanks for uh, allowing these types of interviews with, with proper answers about serious topics. Andrew, the pandemic is effectively over for Canada. We've declared it such on the Canada Science Policy uh, committee to exit the pandemic. It's a similar declaration for countries like Singapore, Israel, Ireland, United Kingdom, Spain, Norway, Denmark, Netherlands, Finland. I could go on. Uh, they're no uh, less smart than we are. In fact, they've collapsed their systems less. They've determined that it is now effectively endemic, which means that it has a highly seasonal character, first of all. Secondly, that their systems are able to deal with any rises and falls, of course, during seasonal variation, as are ours. And thirdly, on a systems understanding in Canada, it is the minor problem amongst eight crises of system that are very serious in the countries. All those things combined mean that it's steady as it's full on as she goes through the systems we exit with high energy, the pandemic is over for us. We are not following the science as a science project because then you would say, well, a virus never ends. We could be following the science and studying COVID-19 for a century. And that's what happens with all historical viruses. It is a policy lead, the science informs that. And we're at a point, both through vaccination, other, other immunity, other interventions, and the passage of the virus, the mutations, at a point where we're ready to exit quite easily across the systems that we'll discuss. So that's the considered determination across huge study and consultation by the committee over a short period of time. And we're ready to go. So we presented our exit plan on the back of an endemicity declaration that we say with considerable certainty and consistent with other positions and our own domestic circumstances. You mentioned a few moments ago, Irvin, a whole list of countries that have done what we've been hoping for in Canada for quite some time. They've lifted restrictions. They've declared the pandemic effectively over. And in those cases, though, it was governments that made that declaration, governments that made the determination to lift these restrictions. Why in Canada, and I, I mean no disrespect to you and your group here, but why in Canada is it falling to a private sector group to make this declaration instead of governments making it? We're not for profit, but we are doing it in some sense for the government, which is unable to make that declaration for a host of reasons, both backing themselves into ideological corners, into corners of fetish, into slogans, uh, corners on online. They're just unable to say what, what is obvious to a policy community that is observing uh, this both nationally and internationally, I should say. It is a policy lead. So when you say government, it is not scientists that declare the pandemic is over. The scientists study and they advise, but government and policy people decide. This is what we've got wrong from the ab initio at the very start in Canada. We started working in slogans, follow the science or the virus is in charge. Nay, policy is in charge. We study the virus. We have science advisors amongst many other advisors across the disciplines, and they advise policy people who make a determination. 
The policy determination is that we're good to go across the systems. The science determination is that it is endemic. It feeds into a policy conclusion and we provide the choreography of exit across the systems. The other countries that you've mentioned did not collapse their systems to the same degree that we have, and I'm sure we'll discuss that, which is why, contrary to what we say online or what the government imagines when it says, I gotta have gut feeling that we should, we should exit slowly, steady she goes, see what the numbers are. It has to be full on, full energy, not just restrictions. Obviously the restrictions go uh, immediately, and then we, we, we'll discuss that. But across the other systems that have collapsed, national unity, public health, non-COVID, education, the economy, international, the international picture, the social fabric, we've collapsed those to, to a very, very considerable degree. And we, so we can't just afford to look at COVID cases, ICU counts, all of that is for the good, but it has to be in a complex of systems thinking. And the conclusion is we're off, we gotta go, go, go. Otherwise the systems continue to collapse, COVID notwithstanding. Let me then ask you about why that's happening in your estimation and, and your fellow committee members here. Is it because government is relying on bad science or flawed science, or is it that governments are, in your view, drawing the wrong conclusions from science that is at its core sound? It's a great question, and I, it's one for the history books, and we do at the end of our uh, this exit table that we provided, I, I recommend all people look at is eight by 21 matrix with detailed choreography across all regions of the country, across all systems. At the end, we do call for a real commission on the pandemic lessons learned and best practices around the world. Uh, my own um, working hypothesis is that we collapsed intellectually and systems wise in the, in the machinery of government at the very start. Whereas science advisors and scientists were at the very margins of public decision-making in 2019, we all of a sudden said, the scientists are in charge. And our scientists are some of the best in the world. They're clinically excellent and they're well-intentioned, good professionals. But with the greatest respect, they stink at public policy. Public, <laughs> policy, is, public policy is a separate craft, no less complex and requiring no less intellectual um, capacity. Well, yeah, they're not economists. They're not constitutional scholars. And I mean, those are just two significant things that were absent from much of the discourse early on, especially, but I'd say even now to some extent. Education specialists, social, mm -hmm. social scientists, social policy people, economists, business people, constitutional lawyers, international strategists, national unity thinkers, uh, everything related to the complex system that we call uh, Canadian society, second largest country in the world. And we imagine that all of our thinking reduces to COVID. The COVID is the central condition. And COVID is obviously an amazing, a, a massive shock to the system. But all along, we should have had a complex of, of thinkers and a synthesis at the top called a policy synthesis. That's what leadership is about. We collapse that in favor of the scientists who all of a sudden had decision-making power and veto power over school closures, business closures, border closures, the social fabric, vaccination, non-vaccination. They signed off on government and uh, decision-making in, in all these spheres that extended well beyond their legitimate ken. In many cases, they didn't know what they were doing, but they were charged with this and perhaps they grew to be confident about it. And it's clear that they overstretched. What we've done on this committee, I think it's, it's very original across the countries. And I'm not aware of any other committee, uh, national committee in any other country around the world that has done this. We brought a communion between the scientists and the doctors and the policy community across many disciplines. We brought them together to exit 
nationally. And we have a policy lead that science feeds into that. And so the choreography we have is, is, is that of a policy choreography determined by uh, excellent science and scientists. One thing that was interesting looking at the table that you provided here is, is you don't just break it down chronologically, you know, from steps you take in February and March and, and beyond, but also regionally. And, and some things are, are general, you know, the end of restrictions. That's something that applies in the north, Atlantic Canada, central Canada, the west. Where are the areas where you do think there are regional differences here that need to be taken into consideration? Because that's not something that we've really heard discussed. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's been a very one-size-fits-all solution that has been offered by the federal government, certainly. It's a great question. The country is very big, I repeat. It's the second biggest country in the world, and we divide it into four regions. Atlantic Center, centers Canada, uh, sorry, Ontario, Quebec. Uh, the West, four provinces, and the huge North, which is the size territorially of the European Union. So it's huge. Uh, for Ontario, for instance, uh, the most cataclysmic school closures, we recommend an immediate door-to-door -door campaign to find the 100,000 plus third bucket kids, kids out of all school permanently, not homeschool, not pod school, not physical school, no school. We must be found immediately. That's particular to Ontario. And then something like Section 22 that has allowed Office of Medical Health to uh, close schools and close businesses in a very decentralized way, we, we uh, advise for that to be rescinded in the Ontario Health Prom Protection Promotion Act immediately, on top of all other restrictions, vaccine passports. But if you go to the north of the country, all of a sudden we, sit, we talk about international borders, we talk about borders between the territories, very different realities because they, they are completely isolated. If you go to the west of the country, uh, we have specific recommendations related to indigenous communities, to, to, to business and, and, and grants and, and loan guarantees. We also announce a national uh, Canada Walk for Youth on April 3rd of this year to really physically impose the youth who have suffered most during this pandemic of Canada to, to get out in sports teams, schools, uh, communities, university level to show their force. They are the, the future. So the choreography, you're right, is very regional, properly so, because the pandemic has been very variegated across the regions, through time, across eight systems. Let me go through the systems quickly. There's COVID public health, non-COVID public health. There's education, the economy, institutions, national unity, social fabric, international. One quick thing that people won't know, won't won't recognize, including decision makers, is while we call for immediate uh, removal of vaccination mandates, vaccination conditionality, although continued new vaccination campaigns for the most immunosuppressed, immunocompromising aged, when new vaccines come out, for everyone else, it's off to the races. We're learning, we're studying immediately, without fetish, without without any zombie exit, without anything gradual, immediate because we need that high energy. But people don't realize that there are all these vaccination impositions across the society that are out of control. Businesses, schools, private schools, camps, universities, sports clubs that are just being imposed and proliferated out of control, mostly for marketing or fetish purposes or ideological purposes. And when the government stops the vaccination mandates at the center, these continue and they create huge chaos in the social fabric. So all these systems need to be understood in their totality. And we call for an end to that. Again, not for ideological purposes, but because that's over, we're off to the races across the systems. 
Oh, I mean, obviously, a lot of the restrictions to do with travel, to do with public servants, to do with uh, some of the national level things like vaccine procurement or areas that are within the purview of the federal government. A lot of the things that you're pushing for when it comes to healthcare systems, when it comes to education, are things that would have to be instituted at a provincial level. And we know that premiers talk, the first ministers and the prime minister, they all get together. But when push comes to shove, how do you choreograph something when you're talking about 13 different governments, not to mention local and, and regional governments underneath that? It's a great question. On, on the federal side, just strict federal powers, obviously we, are, we uh, advise and call for a reinstitution of federal control over interprovincial borders, and those need to be removed. Physical borders, regulatory borders, psychological borders. Let us never imagine in the future that provinces will just willy-nilly set up interprovincial borders. That's proper. And you're just talking about within the country there. That's within the country. Yes. These are these are interprovincial and, and provincial territorial borders that have been erected willy-nilly by provinces. And the federal government ceded that authority. The federal government was reimposed itself and and rid the country of these internal borders because otherwise we don't have a country we don't have a federation huge blockages to economic uh, wealth and, and travel and psychological unity but the federal government must bang heads the leaders are the provincial governments that have imposed restrictions for a variety of interests and and and, and purposes the federal government must choreograph this exit by bringing everyone together and launching this national plan a lot of the instruments are in the provincial hands some municipal but the federal government must declare for the country, as we've already allowed it to do through this national committee, nonpartisan, that it's over. It's over because other countries have already said such. Our capacity to deal with any uh, seasonal uptick is plentiful. And on a systems understanding, Canada has other fish to fry very serious ones. So the federal government has huge instruments, has huge spending power still. It has interprovincial, it has international power, and it controls huge institutions, sectors like the banks, all the, all the interprovincial international transport sectors. The North, which in, in my other thinking is the future of the country, will open up a huge arteries of imagination and economic and, and social activity. And that all of that is in Ottawa. One dimension of this roadmap that I, I found quite fascinating because it's not something that's gotten, I'd say, any substantive discussion is the rebuilding of institutional trust in Canada. I think certainly mistrust has been something we hear spoken about on an individual level and certainly in media. It's a discussion that I've had here on this show and elsewhere, people not trusting public health officials, politicians, and in many cases for good reason. But you've actually put this specifically front and center in the roadmap, recovery of of trust in institutions and also institutional efficacy. So it goes hand in hand. I think the institutions need to be effective and they also need to communicate that efficacy. Do you, th I mean, first off, do you agree with my assertion that this has not gotten nearly enough attention? And I guess more fundamentally, how do you rebuild that trust? Correct. It's not got enough attention because some of the ones that need to provide the attention are the ones in whom uh, trust has been lost, frankly. So we start with uh, the information space. I don't want to call it the media space. I call it the information space. How Canadians get their information, how they feed information to government, how government feeds information to Canadians. Over the last two years, we've been unable to tell our own stories, our own realities. It's also important that we, uh, it also explains why we do regional uh, roadmaps on top of the national one, because the regions are so different amongst themselves 
and we're not able to tell that diversity of experience to the central governments, to media apparatus in, based in Toronto and Montreal, who are not leaving Zoom rooms. So media is one of them. Huge um, deficiency in performance over the last two years, we can explain why, but that needs to be reconsolidated if we're going to have a country that is able to inform its decision makers about realities on the ground and tell its own stories to itself. Government, governments in at all levels have essentially been operating in emergency mode for two years. Leave aside the Emergencies Act in Ottawa. This emergencies power has is almost universal. It's by two or three people at the center of government in all the provincial capitals and the federal capital making decrees by fiat for countries that that a country for a country they do not see that is again the second largest in the world with those feedback mechanisms absent because the media itself is not reporting properly the media itself is not leaving the zoom room and as a result regardless of the intellect and good intention of the decision makers huge huge mistakes of public policy and administration hence the eight crises of system we have in the country that are not seen in other countries countries less developed or smaller they just did not collapse because they didn't collapse the institutions. And of course, there are other institutions, like if you want to call the emergency or police services, you have to wonder whether they'll come in some cases. If you want to do banking, if there's a mistake in the banking, if your account is frozen in, 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 the, in the current circumstances, what are the appeal mechanisms? If uh, your child, son or daughter is not being educated because of closures in schools and the third bucket condition we talked about, what is the appeal mechanism? How do you get information about how to re-educate your child. This is all collapse of systems and institutions that were foreign to us in 2019. And we have to carefully recon reconsolidate, reconstitute these institutions if we're going to have a country. So as we talked about earlier, this is something that you are, are driving with your committee to advise the government. Governments do not like moving swiftly, as we've seen, even with places like Alberta and Saskatchewan, which have been more quick than other jurisdictions to want to lift their vaccine passports and whatnot. They are putting plans in place that take weeks to months to do it. So how do you, with your data, with your information, go to governments and say, no, you can do this immediately? Right. So... Great, great question. Again, good questions, as always, Andrew. They, I want to, for your distinguished listeners, just disabuse them of the idea that the exit is just removal of restrictions. Well, that, but that is the first step. That's where that's coming step, from. No, it's, it's a concurrent step. And why? Because we, we say that at the, it's the very first box amongst hundreds of them. Removal of all restrictions with the proviso for the immunocompromised, immunosuppressed. Why? Um, not because I like or dislike restrictions, because on the system's understanding, we've collapsed all the other ones, and therefore we need to move with speed. But if we were only to remove restrictions, we would still have 200,000 kids out of school, still huge learning gaps. We still have tens of thousands of businesses disintegrated, huge social conflict. So we need to restitch all of that as we remove restrictions. It's not remove restrictions and off she goes, because that is continued chaos. So government needs to move on all systems beyond just removal of restrictions, which is the negative step. Governments are historically slow. Canada is extremely slow. So we have to do things that are counterintuitive to us. When the Medical Officer of Health of, of Ontario, Kieran Moore says, I imagine my gut tells me that the masks of students will be off at some point, but later than the rest. That's a gut, that's, that's his gut talking. He's talking to Canadian there, which is the gut. It's not the gut. The strategic approach is we're off to the races. Why? 
because our kids are two years behind on learning and many of them are not in school. Why must we be off to the races in national unity through unsigned borders? Because the country is falling apart in, in the centrifugal forces. Why must we be off to the race in the economy? Because if we wait, more businesses will disintegrate. They don't stick around for you to have a coffee and, and say, I feel comfortable now lifting restrictions. These are what I call Twitter or Facebook positions, but they're not strategic positions for a country like Canada. And therefore we need to overcome the foolish instinct to, to believe our Twitter feed and say, this is the structure of our, of our country. This is the structure of the systems in collapse. There are eight of them. We need to inject maximum energy at the front end in order for all of them to begin to reconsolidate. And only then might we, in more difficult post-pandemic circumstance, reach 2019, because we've collapsed way beyond, way before 2019. We remove everything today, we're still not at 2019 quality of life. Other countries are because they didn't collapse to the same extent. The report you can access at i21cq.com, the Institute for 21st Century Questions. It is the product of the Canada Science and Policy Committee to exit the pandemic. The chair of that committee, Irvin Student, joins me now. Irvin, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. I'm co-chair of Kwajo Karamantang, doctor, and, and, and we've uh, brought the scientists and, doctor and policy people together. And always a pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. And yeah, I'm glad he mentioned uh, Dr. Quadmo Kermatang. He's been fantastic. And of all the doctors that the mainstream media TV shows tend to draw from, he's been one of the strongest because he's actually been speaking out, especially with children, but in general, about the negative effects of lockdowns. And I, I think it's so important to do that. Again, being anti-lockdown is not being anti-science. And this is one of the most uh, disruptive and deceptive messages we've seen in a lot of media coverage. Because again, some of the very scientists are saying, hey, we need to follow the science and reopen, yet somehow those things are not always given the political attention they deserve. We've got to take a quick break here. When we come back, we will close out the show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Well, I know it's we tried to pack a lot into the show here. My thanks to Yaroslav Baran and also to Urban Student. And also, importantly, to all of you tuning in, we're going to be back tomorrow with another brand new edition of The Andrew Lawton Show. I'm not even going to tell you what's on it. I'm not trying to keep you in suspense, but I just don't know. That much is going on that I don't want to commit to a path and then find that uh, news is causing us to uh, rip up the run sheet and start again. But whatever it is, I assure you it'll be good. Uh, my thanks to you all. If you want to contribute to keep this show on the air, you can head on over to donate.tnc.news. And we thank you so much for your generous support. We'll talk to you tomorrow, folks. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you. God bless and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.